Welcome to Rocking Our Priors. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now here's a question. Why has Rwanda got a strong state and the Central African Republic has civil war? So we know state power is legitimized over centuries and institutionalized. We know this from big, large-end comparative studies, that pre-colonial ethnic centralization is associated with regional development, that homicides are lower in countries with a long history of state formation. States can provide public goods, but they're also coercive. How is that coercive power built up over time, and how does it become seen as legitimate? To answer these questions, I'm with Yale professor Louisa Lombard, and we're going to trace the comparative histories of the Central African Republic and Rwanda. Louisa, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Alice. Okay, this is going to be awesome. So, number one, tell me about the historical roots of war-torn Central African Republic. Well, let me just step back very briefly okay. and say that I started off uh, my academic career studying the Central African Republic and have more recently turned to do some research in Rwanda. And in my teaching, I often tell people that uh, Africa is a very diverse continent. And I feel like now, on the basis of my research, I really have a lot of evidence to marshal to back up that claim, because these are two countries that are very close to each other, geographically speaking, but that are very, very different in terms of all sorts of cultural and social factors and how the governments work in these two places. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, this is why I think your work is super fascinating, and I'm so happy for this conversation. Okay. Historical roots of CAR. Talk me through it. Well, so if we go back to the lands that are now marked on maps as the Central African Republic, let's go back 300 years, 400 years, that kind of time period. And what we would find would be very prosperous societies spread throughout this area. Um, very prosperous, but also very non-hierarchical. These were societies that were um, where people were living more on a kind of village basis. And there was no one person who got to stand up and tell other people what to do. There were people who occupied positions of some respect, who were known as particularly good mediators, who were known as particularly good channelers of supernatural powers, but there was nothing approaching a kind of police force or prisons or any of those kinds of institutions. Now, this I want to emphasize the sort of the prosperousness of these places. When some of the first Europeans came into this area in the 1800s and started describing people, they described the people as moderately overweight, um, people who were very healthy. And this was because this was a very fertile region. And maybe more importantly than that, there's a lot of water. So in contrast to some of the areas to the north, where maybe people would have to settle around a water point, in this part of Central Africa, there are lots of rivers, lots of streams. Um, and so it's a, a place where people can move around relatively easily and live in a fairly dispersed kind of a way. May I just push back on the point about prosperous? I can totally understand that if you live in the, in the tropics where there is year-round food supply, then you can be fat and happy. But does it get more prosperous than being fat? Because, like, that would be my only question. Like, yes, people might have enough food, but... So in, I mean, I mean, you know, you know, well, well-being is totally subjective. But do we have any evidence that it got beyond 
adequate food for all year round. And I agree that's important, but is there anything more than that? Yes, there is. And one bit of evidence in that respect is that when we look at this Central African region in the late 1700s into the 1800s, we know that there was an incredible flourishing of different kinds of currencies that were being used. So people were trading at a really high rate. There was a lot of connection, a lot of stuff that was going on. Did they have the kind of material accumulation that people had in Europe at that time? Absolutely not. But that was in part because there was such a strong kind of ethos of egalitarianism that was running through a lot of these societies. Now, I use the word prosperous in part because I want to draw a sharp contrast to what happened later mm -hmm. with the advent first of a kind of Muslim-led uh, trade and rating system, and then with the addition to that of this European kind of colonialism, which left the peoples of this area emaciated and impoverished. Yeah, so I just hear about what were they trading um, in the time before the Muslim raids? When they f f had all the currencies, do you know what they were trading? So they were trading a lot of different things, um, but one major thing was ivory. Um, that became more and more important over the course of the 19th century. Um, but they were trading cloth as well. They were trading any of the kinds of things that were not immediately available locally. Okay, okay, I'm with you. Right. So, tell me what happened with the Muslim slave raids from Darfur. So this is a history that in this part of Central Africa dates back to the very end of the 1700s and then ramps up quite a lot over the course of the 19th century. And, you know, if you can kind of picture the map of the African continent, um, you have places where there's a very long history of Islam, um, and then you have places, particularly in West Africa, that is, and then you have places where there's a bit of a shorter history of Islam. And part of what was going on at this time in the 1800s was a kind of connection across these spaces where there hadn't previously been as much Muslim involvement. And what was going on was that you had more and more Muslims in West Africa who wanted to um, make the pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, in the process, they were setting up these kind of trading routes. Um, you also had another dynamic, which was that in some of these Muslim polities in what is now Chad and Sudan, there were, and Libya, there were rulers who wanted to have standing armies. And in order to have standing armies, they had to have slaves. And in order to have slaves, they had to take them from the lands just beyond the Muslim frontier. So this part of Central Africa that is now the Central African Republic was the area where first this kind of trans-Saharan um, mode of raiding and incorporation and this mode of European ter territorialized um, colonial administration, they met, they hit, they overlapped um, for the end of the 1800s and into the 1900s. I have a question. How much slavery do you think there was in the Central African Republic before those Muslim raids? Like, is it possible to know? So we have oral traditions. Um, I would say that so the, the region where I've done most of my research is the northeastern part of the Central African Republic. So that's that corner that's up by Chad and Sudan and now also South Sudan. Um, if you go over to the other side, also the north, but the northwestern side, uh, which is up by Cameroon and Chad, um, there's a different dynamic of slavery in that region directed more towards West Africa. Um, so that, I think, is probably has a little bit longer of a history. But in general, there may have been different kinds of indenture mm. in this region, but it wasn't slavery in the way that we came to see later. 
There's, I don't know if you've read it. Um, there's this book uh, by John Allen Bila Azuma, The Legacy of the Arab Islamic Slave Trade. And he argues that slavery was really marginal to African societies before the before the Islamic conquest, the Islamic slave raids in West Africa and the jihadi movements. Well, this takes us back to some of the debates about slavery in Africa from mm. the 1970s. People like Igor Kapita, for instance, who tried to say, look, when we think about slavery, one of the problems is that we in the English speaking world have a kind of model of what slavery is that comes to us, is bequeathed to us from the really terrible history of plantation slavery in the Americas. And that, in fact, slavery could look a lot of different ways in different places. And so he would argue for a more expansive mm -hmm. conception in which probably there was, you know, there were different kinds of rights in people in a lot of African societies, but the kind of bundling of rights in another person that we saw in its most terrible instantiation in the Americas, but that we also saw in pretty severe extents in some of these trans-Saharan trades. Yeah, lots of people um, died. That was, yeah. oh, absolutely. That was a different a different degree. Yes, yes. Okay, so, so can you tell me more, like, I, 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 and I would flag to listeners here your wonderful book, The Hunting Game. So can you tell me about what happened with the Sultan in Darfur and giving people permission, the, you know, the, the right to go and raid and, you know, blessing people? I found that so interesting how he would legitimize their slave raiding. Yes, so you had these more powerful sultans in, um, again, what is now Chad and, what in, and Darfur, and they had built up through their raiding powerful, you know, a lot of followers, a lot of slaves, um, and they had the capacity to basically deputize other people and say, we're going to give you the right to go raiding um, beyond our territories. And this was an important thing in part because it was a way of saying, you have the authority to go and do this. And by virtue of doing it, you are not directly challenging our power um, because we are kind of deputizing you um, to take on this role. Mm, and then what did they do? How, how, how did they run those slave operations, the, the raiding? So once they got into the raiding themselves, of course, they had almost total operational autonomy. They could kind of do what they wanted. And they ended up using a system that um, has been called the Zaribas system. Yeah. And the Zariba is uh, an Arabic word for an enclosure. Um, and these enclosures that they were making were usually made out of thorn tree branches and those kinds of things, materials that they could find locally. And what they would do is they would try to attack a village in the pre-dawn hours, sometime when people were not expecting it. They would capture all of the people that they could, all of the ivory and other valuable goods that they could, and they would pack them into this zariba that they had made ahead of time and hold them there until they had attacked enough villages that they had this full. Then they would bring them to the kind of local capital and then decide what was going to happen to them next. So some of them would get taken all the way to the Libyan coast. Others of them would be kept locally and be made to work on plantations um, within the region. How did that affect the Central African Republic? It affected it enormously. So one, I mean, there are many different effects, but one is this slightly paradoxical thing that 
remember the Central African Republic is, it's actually geographically a pretty big area. It's about the size of Texas. And it didn't have a particularly large population, although the population at that time, the 1800s, um, was a lot higher than it was several decades later after all of this raiding mm. and European colonial involvement. But it didn't have that many people. There were a lot of really good hiding places also, these kinds of caves and um, rocky outcroppings. Yes. And so it became known as an area that was going to be where there was really good raiding, like you could raid people quite effectively, but also where you could seek refuge. And so over the course of these 1800s, it became a place where there was a lot of people moving around, um, whether because they were being brought into, swept into the orbit, orbit of these raiding polities, or because they were moving to get away from them. And this is part of why when you go to Central African Republic today and you ask people about their sort of quote unquote traditional institutions, mm -hmm. you don't find the same kind of um, instantiate institutionalization of those institutions that you might find in parts of West Africa, where there was a much more direct kind of mode of indirect rule. I guess that's an oxymoron, direct, indirect. But, you know, where where those kinds of traditional institutions were there for colonial authorities to kind of take and remake in their own image. Um, in Central African Republic, there was just much more kind of social mixing and people moving in and out across what are now national borders. How did you think that violence affected group formation? Like, do you do we see a do you think there's any evidence of a shift towards more hierarchical structures, or do we have any evidence on how kinship patterns change? Like, if you're if you're worried if you're terrorized and worried that someone's going to attack you, does that sh change how you organize? So let's just remember how recent this history yes. was. Now we're talking about the the sort of the height of the slave raiding in this part of Central Africa was the last decades of the 1800s. So it's just over a hundred years ago. So you can really see it even just when you talk to people and when people are joking with each other. And luckily now it can go in the direction of joking relationships where people will sometimes say, oh, well, you know, it was your grandpa who was raiding me and <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but it's not that far under the surface because people remember it and they remember times when, hey, my group cooperated with your, my ancestors cooperated with your ancestors Ancestors. So therefore, even though we're from different groups, we see each other as brothers today or the opposite. Mm. And then tell me how things changed under French colonialism. So the French arrived really at the very, very end of the 1800s. And they had been granted these lands at the Berlin Conference. But it wasn't until several decades later that they really showed up and started trying to take stock. And when they first got there, they realized that although they had high hopes that this was going to be some kind of El Dorado for them, in fact, it probably was not. And they made some sort of half-hearted attempts to try to trade these lands for some holdings, coastal holdings in West Africa. They got no takers. So then they said, okay, well, what can we do in this area? And the first thing that they were doing was that they were trying to subdue the leaders who were trying to um, stand up to them. And one of the most important of those was to the north in Chad. And so they realized that they had to have this you know, battle capacity. And in order to do that, they had to ship in things like steamships across the Central African jungle. And they realized that the least bad way to do that was to get people to carry them 
these through Porsches. what is now the yeah. Central African Republic. So the first thing, the, they may have had other kinds of goals for what they were doing during this period, but the thing that took up basically all of their time and energy was finding people to carry stuff for them, because this is an area with no roads. This is an era before cars. Um, you couldn't use animals like horses because of tsetse flies. So instead you had to have people who could carry stuff. And these initial European arrivals in this area had huge amounts of stuff. They had massive iron pots that they would use for bathing themselves in. They had, as I mentioned, disassembled steamships that they wanted to have carried through this area. So their number one priority was finding people to carry stuff for them. And I think that their preference would have been to pay people to do this work, to pay them what they wanted to pay them, mm -hmm. not what people might have wanted to receive in the way of payment. Um, but people weren't interested. They didn't want to do this. They didn't have that inherent interest in the currency that the that the French mm -hmm. were offering. And so as a result, they had to they had to resort to coercion, a lot of coercion. And what that meant was that they ended up piggybacking on these Muslim slave raiders and getting them to provide. Uh, porters for them. And the French would kind of, uh, you know, they would, would pretend that these people were volunteering to do the work. <laughs> um, and they positioned themselves as very different from the Muslim slave raiders. We would never engage in, we would never make people into slaves for us. Um, however, that was exactly what they were doing. And so for that very end of the 1800s into the first decade of the 1900s was this period where that trans-Saharan slave raiding and the European raiding for porters really met and augmented each other. Can you tell me about the process of, get, of coercing the slaves? So when I was reading your book, The Hunting Game, for example, hiring these non-local regional guards and then allowing, and those regional guards were incredibly brutal. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, remember, we're pretty far inland here. The mm. Central African Republic, sometimes I sort of describe it as it's not really on the road to anywhere. It's right at the center of the African continent. So the French had made their way from the coast through, um, you know, through Gabon, through Congo to make it into the Central African Republic. Along the way, they started recruiting people who they saw as a little bit more civilized, as people who they could enter into deals and contracts with people who were more used to a tradition of paid labor. And they employed them as these regional guards who then once they got into the territories that we now know as the Central African Republic, had no compunction about treating people incredibly brutally. And in fact, it was these regional guards a lot of the time who had a lot more power than the Europeans who were present. And the European, you know, you can look in the archives, there are these Europeans who are writing about how they were unsure of how to deal with these guards who were not really under their control and uh, what they could, how they could employ them in the least bad way given the, the um, dynamics that were playing out. Yeah, a couple of things that really struck out in your book for me. Number one, the how the Europeans might carry enough food for themselves, but not necessarily enough food for the slaves or the guards. And so then, first of all, you have these slaves who are carrying maybe 30 or even 60 kilos on their heads and then not given any shelter overnight because, of course, they're primitive savages, in inverted commas, who don't need it, who then die of pneumonia. Mm. Meanwhile, these guards are going into the villages, demanding chickens, and then tying up the women and raping them just to go, you know, just 
letting hellfire break loose and it and it, it just sounds like the most terrible thing in the world yes yeah it was really really awful um it truly was and a lot of people died during this period and this is where you had these towns whole towns and villages that were as i said prosperous that became completely deserted um because the few people who remained had to flee but many, many people were just dead. And one of the really interesting points you, you mention in your book, that there was one traveller, I forget his name, he's there in 1896, and he notes these fields of maize, uh, or no, fields of millet and manioc, and then a guy goes four years later and just notes the rot and devastation because people have gone into the bush to escape, and so they've left all those fertile lands, and it's just turned to decay. Yes. Yeah, it, it's it's re- very sad. It's it's really it's really grim. It's really grim reading. And yes, yeah, so the French, you know, they they just have the you know they they try to pretend it's not their thing, but they they turn a blind eye to all the harm that they're perpetuating. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that really struck me in um, learning about this history was that I think there's a certain kind of self satisfaction that we can sometimes. Um, pretend to enjoy and looking at the past and say, look at these people. They, uh, look at how terrible they were. Um, you know, if only they had known or they were so blind or any number of things like that. And the truth is that throughout this entire period, there were whistleblowers. There were people who were intrepid journalists, who were government, colonial government officials who disagreed. There were people who were drawing attention to what was going on. And because it was so inconvenient for the system of colonial governance more broadly, uh, people would kind of, there would be some kind of quick fix and then pretend that that problem had been solved. Um, But it wasn't really, it wasn't an issue of people didn't know what was going on. People did know what was going on. It didn't take that much to really look and see what was going on. It was that there was such um, willful uh, ignoring of these inherent structural factors that were helping to create the situation that was existing there. And those structural factors have to do with the fact that this whole colonial project in Central Africa was the idea was that the French were going to create a state, a government that looked kind of like the French government, but in Central Africa. However, they were never willing to spend the money that would have been required to go even some small way towards achieving that goal. So they had these grand ideas, expectations about what should be happening there, but very little in the way of means of achieving that. And so what that meant was that particularly once you got outside of the capital, Bangui, and you get into slightly more remote areas, you have these lone government officials, colonial officials, who are there with these regional guards who are not really under their control, and they are told, you must build a road. And they know that in order to get promoted, they know that in order to get to sort of move up and be recognized in their service, they have to achieve this thing, this Mm. task that they are supposed to achieve, or at least go far enough that they can plausibly report that they did it. (laughs) And what's left to them? They don't have money. They don't have the kinds of resources to do this in perhaps a slightly less coercive way. All that's left for them is to be alternately extremely brutal and neglectful. And so that's what they end up doing. And that, unfortunately, is a dynamic that has proven fairly persistent 
in this place because this remains a country that has extremely little in the way of sort of material resources um, and yet that has this aspiration, expectation of being a state and doing state-like things. Well, the only way to even pretend to do that ends up being through quite a lot of violence. At least that's the tactic that a lot of the rulers of different kinds tell have, me, tell have me. ended up using. I was going to make one segue when we talk about uh, people turning a blind eye despite a lot of evidence of labor coercion. Even today, for example, in China, in the Western region with Xinjiang, like we know there's massive repression. We know that there are there's labor camps, there's forced, uh, you know, horrific things in Western China. And yet a lot of European companies, American companies are still sourcing from there, have factories from there, etc., getting the cotton. So, yeah better believe it anyway so going back to your point what about what about happened in independence was there any was it possible to build any kind of state structures so uh, remember france had colonies in west africa and in central africa and of all of those colonies ubangishari which is what central african republic was then known as was recognized as the worst off in terms of its financial resources and in terms of the amount of education and just institutions that had been built up during the colonial period. So it was not an easy um, situation to come into independence in. And actually, the country's first independence um, uh, leader, rabble-rouser, Barthélemy Boganda, um, he recognized this, and his plan was that actually all of the former colonies of French Equatorial Africa should band together and become one federated state, that that would be a way for them to be more prosperous than if they tried to each go it on their own. His He ended up dying in a, a plane crash before independence, and his vision was not realized, and his analysis of just how dis difficult it was going to be to be an independent Central African Republic proved quite correct. Um, you know, you have independence, but with very, very few people who had any kind of um, education, with very little in the way of institutions, with very little in the way of revenues and um, kind of state budgets. So it was, at that time, it was a place that did not have a lot of violence or outright conflict. Um, but it was also a place where there was still a lot of um, material poverty. Mm. Okay, so in terms of explaining poverty in the Central African Republic today, to what extent would you, if I gave you four things to blame, and you have to apportion blame, so if one, if we say geography, two, if we say the history of Muslim slave raids, three, if we say French colonialism, and four, if we say something modern happening now, how would you divide it up? So I guess what I would say is that throughout this history, and also because of the geography. Remember, this is a really vast space that doesn't have a whole lot of people in it, so it's fairly sparsely populated. So with all of these different factors, they've all combined to make it very difficult to establish a kind of social contract between the people who are putatively the governors, the rulers, um, and the, the citizens of this country. A social contract that has some kind of um, you know, an important dimension of, of reciprocity, of kind of mutual obligations to each other. That, I think, is a really big part of all of this.
Mm. Um, evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar, he's got this book out where he makes an interesting argument about the tropics. He says that in the tropics, where there is plentiful food supply, where you can pretty much look after yourself year round without having to trade food with others, then that would have encouraged self-sufficiency. And so that might explain why the Central African Republic, for example, has 80 different ethnic groups and 80 different languages, because you don't need to learn the same language. You don't need to assimilate. So that would have always impeded trade for food, for example, and led to these ethnic divisions. And so even and so that might help us explain why we didn't see more ethnic political centralization, why there was never a strong state that emerged to withstand and defend that entire territory against the Muslim slave raiding or against French colonialism. No. See, I okay, find those okay. kinds of arguments really interesting. Okay. I love reading about them, but I also they also often convince me that I'm I'm in the right disciplinary. Okay, home tell in me, tell me, give me the anthro counter. I, I don't think it's a counter exactly, but just that there are lots of inconvenient details that don't fit that story. Okay. So here's one. Um, you talked about all these different ethnic groups with their different languages. Mm. Okay, that's true, although ethnic group is kind of a is an imprecise term in this context. But it's also the case that from the 1950s to today, um, there is a national language that has spread in the Central African Republic, namely Sango. Um, and it has spread despite this being a very weak central government, despite there not being a whole lot of trade and uh, uh, um, transportation around in the country, almost everyone in the country speaks Sango. Like this, and Sango had been seen as a colonial imposition. It was a kind of colonial workaround because um, the, the French needed everybody to speak the same language, but teaching them French, that seemed like it would be too complicated. So they took this sort of trading language of Sango and said, let's use this instead. Um, but people really resisted it because they saw it as a kind of foreign imposition. But then starting in the 1950s, you had these musicians who started singing in Sango. And with the radio, it started becoming a little bit more accessible to people. And and it just took off. People saw it as useful and it worked and they ran with it. So there's this strange way that although the um, Central African Republic is this incredibly um, dysfunctional state and people there are really lamentably materially impoverished, nevertheless, like how did this sort of national language end up emerging here? That would be an interesting kind of counterexample to the dysfunction of the state, the kind of the workingness of this language. I think that's a, a really great point. And let me add three things. I think that one shows you that this sort of a deep root story of history is problematic if you don't look at the intervening period, because there is agency. Leaders are able to change things. And let me give you two examples. In Tanzania, they introduced Swahili, right? And they championed uh, Tanzanian national identity. And so there's a great paper by Edward McWell, uh, a political economy where they compare it with uh, Kenya, where there's huge ethnic fractionalism and ethnic histories are always taught and people contribute less to public goods. Whereas in Tanzania, if you look at Afrobarometer data, people really champion a Tanzanian identity. So I definitely think these yeah. things are malleable. But that in Tanzania, yeah. the, the imposition of Swahili in Tanzania, as far as I understand it, I mean, the whole kind of um, Tanzanian socialist project involved a whole lot of coercion. Right, right. And in Central African Republic, there wasn't a lot of coercion brought to bear in this dispersion of Sango. Mm -hmm. It was something that was taken up more locally and then has become a real marker of nationalism and only very recently has been turned 
into an exclusionary marker of nationalism. If you don't speak Sango, then you cannot be Central African. Another example of a linguistic change that is um, Ataturk introducing the Turkish language rather than, you know, overnight changing, you know, from everything being in Arabic to Turkish. So definitely there's this possibility to change identities, create a sense of shared identity through language. So, yeah, I really appreciate that point. Thank you. Thank you. But wait, do we not see, OK, so even if everyone speaks Sango, do we not still see ethnic fractionalism today? There's definitely eth- ethnic fractionalism, but I think it's... Um, it's a little bit more um I, there's there's you know ethnic slash regional slash class slash there's all these different kinds of things so but you so you would argue that the colonial slave okay in explaining why central africa today is now in conflict what do you think would be the most important factors for that today Whew, that's a difficult question to answer precisely. So let's just review the history here. Mm. So independence in 1960, and then several decades of not exactly a growing economy, in fact, the opposite, but not a lot of violent conflicts. Conflicts. Then we get to, and a lot of support from France, a lot of kind of post-colonial support for France. France had these major military bases in the Central African Republic because it was seen as a good location for checking any kind of Libyan adventurism. This, remember, this is the area uh, era of Gaddafi, you know, towards the south. So you have a lot of French kind of support propping up this country, not a lot of violence. Then you get to the end of the Cold War. Um, And it's a few different factors that are hitting all at once. One is massive economic decline. Any kind of raw materials, these have just been been tanking in terms of what the the prices that people can get for them. Another is that these Western donors, such as France, that have been doing a lot to prop up these governments, start saying, well, we don't really need to do that anymore because there's no Cold War anymore. And instead, let's champion these values like democracy and multi-party democracy. And so they start doing that instead. And as you get that shift into this sort of multi-party democracy that ends up working quite badly, actually, in this context, then people start to feel like since the ground is shifting underneath them, what are the kinds of ties and social connections that they can actually count on? And what those are end up being these supposedly primordial ties of ethnicity, of region, um, those kinds of, of connections. And you start to see a much greater kind of factionalization than you had seen before. And some of the, the presidents at this time would try to stack the military. So you think the multi-party democracy them. worse than the ethnic fractionalism? I do. I do think that that, that worsened the, the ethnic fractionalism um, in a context of scarcity. You know, this was a musical chairs kind of a situation um, where all of a sudden there's much less money to go around. And so how are you going to get your peace and who can you count on um, in this kind of a context? So do you think the donors were to blame for enforcing multi-party democracy? Like, do you think there could have been a... a ha- I think they did it in a very ham-handed kind of a way. At the same time, let's not romanticize what came before. Yeah, sure. I mean, the entire 1980s in the Central African Republic was France literally installing and then propping up one person. There was no nothing democratic about any of that. So, you know, it's... Um, 
it, it wasn't a great situation, that, but it then in a lot of ways became worse in that it became much more violent. So the violence in the Central African Republic, which is where I was getting to in this sort of rambling narration of the history, perfect sets in in the mid-1990s when the army starts mutinying over not having its salary paid. And this is a period, this post-Cold War period in Africa is a period when a lot of leaders start realizing, recognizing that rebel groups starting rebel groups, founding rebel, like, can be a way of getting power, of getting a seat at the table, and um, you name it. And so that's that this phenomenon of rebel groups in the Central African Republic really takes hold, in part because of fallout from what's going on to the north in Chad in the, the 2000s. And the problem is that once you start into onto this road of thinking that founding a rebellion can be a way to gain a seat at the table it's very very difficult to get rid of that yes. tendency because you what what can you do what are the tools that are available well you can have a peace process or something like that but the moment that you have a peace process then you have to start you are you're you're um recognizing that this taking up of arms was at least to some degree, legitimate, and you are kind of buying those people off. And once people see that people get bought off for doing this, then other people want to do it as well. And it becomes a very vicious kind of a cycle that is itself exacerbated by the historical tendency whereby whoever is in power in the Central African capital, the president, has not really seen it as his job to govern the territory to be present everywhere providing services or anything like that. That president sees it as his role to negotiate concessions with other people. At this point, we're talking donors, we're talking international humanitarian organizations to run the health sector, to run the education sector, and, and you name it. And so that also contributes to that central government wanting to do just enough to kind of get those rebel groups Make it so those rebel groups are not able to threaten their position. But beyond that, they're not quite as concerned uh, with other things that they might be doing. So governance is crap and the state is weak. So I want to pause the Central African Republic, and thank you for that. Now Rwanda, because this is the fascinating contrasting case. Can you tell me about pre-colonial Rwanda? Well, now it's time for something completely different. <laughs> so in Rwanda... Uh, you know, Rwandan oral history goes back for, you know, at least a thousand years and describes the existence of a centralized polity and exactly what that has looked like, exactly what the values have been, um, exactly what kinds of institutions they have had have changed over time. Um, but there's this very long history of having a kind of centralized authority um, with um institutions that support it with a hierarchy, social hierarchy that goes into that um, over this very long period. And particularly, you know, this history is particularly well developed and sort of known from about the 1600s and onward when we started seeing Rwandan kings who were uh, expansionist in their, um, in their, their, their view of the world and wanted to make this kind of Rwandan polity uh, spread beyond um, where it had initially started off. And so you had a quite institutionalized military as part of all of this. Um, it was a military that, although it looked different from 
the kind of European professional militaries that emerged in the 1800s, nevertheless had some interesting kind of parallels, things like um, awards that would be given to people for different kinds of bravery. Um, again, this was a, a quite developed and um, uh, uh, diverse, uh, not, not diverse, what's the word I'm looking for? It was a, a, a military where people were playing different roles, where there was a, um, kind of had uh, a kind of tradition of, of training and going on operations. You just mentioned the Imohido ceremonies, and I know they've recently revived them to, for the maternal health system. There's this fascinating paper that the ODI brought out called Is the Bride Too Beautiful? And it talks about Rwandan public officials. Am I right with the Imohido? Where they'd given these public awards for their public service, and it's a way of recognizing their contributions to the public good. Yeah, so reviving Absolutely. these pre-colonial institutions. Yeah. Yes, and of course, any time that something gets revived, it also gets remade and turned into something new. Um, but it is, we're jumping a little bit ahead yeah, sorry, here, sorry, sorry. but this is one of the things that's interesting about the current Rwandan government, which is quite authoritarian, um, but in the midst of its authoritarianism has a very interesting um, way of being anti-colonial in that they want to uh, kind of cut out that whole colonial period and instead revive these traditions that predate, and they, these tradi traditions of statehood and unity, as they see it, hierarchical unity, but nevertheless unity. Yeah, so I um, wanted to ask you, so um, my understanding, and I want you to correct me, because I am not an expert on Rwanda. So I, I, so I was looking at Jan Rancina, and he talks about how it was the Tutsi dominated class. So t now in Rwanda, it's 15% uh, Tutsi, 80% Hutu, and it was the Tutsis that dominated. So they were the sort of warrior class, they were the ruling class. And there was also this institution of labor coercion, whereby the peasantry, the Hutu name Jan Rancina argues only came in the 20th century, the peasantry would be forced to work uh, for the Tutsis, even to be like overnight watchmen, to be all these horrific things that they didn't like. And it was very labor repressive. And they were also forced to pay tribute um, to the so it was a hierarchical but strong state. It was a labor coercive strong state. Yes, and I use that term hierarchical mm. very specifically in this mm. context. And I, I mean, I use it specifically. I use it also as an encouragement to other people to do more research on this topic because I would like to know more than I think we know at this point. But um, in the social science literature, uh, we differentiate between hierarchy and stratification. Uh -huh. In kind of common parlance, we use these interchangeably, but they refer to different things, a uh, different kind of setup. So stratification is when you have inequality and you have no sense of a social whole. So stratification would be something like the United States today, where you have massive levels of inequality, um, but whether any one person is here or not doesn't really change the, 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 the sense of the polity. In hierarchy, in a hierarchical system, and this is an ideal version of it, but in a hierarchical system, you have inequality, but there's a very strong sense of what the whole is. And as a result, even though there's inequality, you need each of the people who are part of that. So an example would be a military. In the military, you have people who are privates, you have people who are generals. They are not equal. They have very different roles to play. However, you cannot have a military without both privates and generals. And I think that to some degree, and again, I'm putting this out there kind of as a hypothesis because I want to encourage people to look into it more. But I think that to some degree in this pre-colonial Rwanda, what we were looking at was a social world that was more along the lines of a hierarchy 
and less along the lines of stratification. But I'm, I'm getting confused because d- don't rich Americans like people here at Yale rely on a cheap underclass to do all their dirty work that we don't want to do? Like, isn't that a reliance? Isn't that a mutual dependence? So I think that probably by bringing in the example of the United States, I muddied things up a little bit because the United States is so huge that it becomes a little bit hard to grapple with. But what I'm referring to is that, you know, when you think about the really deep inequality in a place like the United States. You think about the tent cities that exist in many American cities these days. And um, from the perspective, at least, of a lot of uh, well-to-do Americans, like you could just get rid of those tent cities and it wouldn't change that much about the United States. Most people would prefer if you did get rid of them. Most people would prefer if you did get rid of them. So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at, that you can have this immense inequality and you don't have the feeling that the people who are in those perhaps more menial positions are nevertheless necessary for the functioning of the whole. So what you're saying, sorry. And so I think that potentially when we're talking about pre-colonial Rwanda and we're talking about the people who became incorporated into this Rwandan state, um, they were not equal. Um, but there probably was more of a role that they were playing within the polity than in some of these but they were still... It was more of a caste kind of a system. But how does it cut? But even if it's a caste system, uh, those people could still be badly treated. Absolutely. Bullied, abused. Absolutely. Living in poverty. Absolutely. And this is, you know, in part I'm drawing on arguments that are often made about um, India, in particular the work of Dumont in talking about hierarchy in yes. India and the caste system in India. And, I mean, the caste system in India, there are certainly mm. a lot of people in the the castes that were not as exalted were mm. treated miserably, yes, yes. absolutely miserably. So we're not. I'm not trying to romanticize this at all, but as a way of trying to think about what might this polity have looked like? What might have different social positions within it have looked like? I think it's a helpful um, element to bring in because, you know, for those of us who are living in places like, you know, me in New Haven, Connecticut these days, to try to really get yourself into the Rwanda of the 1800s forces you to um, get out of the, the kind of um, you know, capitalist labor way of looking at yes. things and all sorts of things. Do we know when Hutu started to perceive this posi- this system as in- illegitimate? Do we know when they started to think that it was unfair? So, um, or have they always done so? I think I'm sure that there have always been people who found found this to be unfair. You know, there's a, a New Yorker cartoon um, of these three fish, and um, the 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 smallest fish is being eaten by a medium-sized fish, which is being eaten by a large fish. And the smallest fish is saying, there is no justice in the world. And the medium-sized fish, which is both eating and being eaten, says there is some justice in the world. And the big fish says there is total justice in the world. So, you know, if you are the one who happens to be at the top of that hierarchy, then you probably think it's a pretty good system. If you are not, then you might have a lot more um, criticisms of it. But I think the important thing to remember um, is that is the ways that these social distinctions and these differences of roles became racialized and ethnicized 
over the course of the colonial regime and were used as the basis for very official discrimination. Right. And that's when it starts to become an identity in a way that's very different from what it was before. That's when Tutsi starts to become an identity, when Hutu starts to become an identity in a way that was different from how it was before. And particularly over the course of that period of Belgian colonial rule from the teens, 19-teens, until independence in 1962, um, you had institutionalized discrimination against the majority of the populace. Right, and so this is a crucial point that the colonizers thought the Tutsis were taller and more sophisticated, so favored them, so props them up in all their institutions and bureaucracy. And so this is your key point that, you know, it, it, nothing is set in stone by the pre-colonial institutions. There's lots of agency. But let me, I want to push back with my geographical determinism. So when I was reading my Jan Vanzina, he made this really interesting point that the labor coercion emerged as a result of two things. One, improved agriculture, um, and population pressure made that land so valuable and then the Tutsis still controlled it. So people wanted to work on that land because they had very little exit options. So then they became trapped in this serfdom kind of system. So it was because you had valuable land, then you see the emergence of inequality and people don't want to leave it because that's better. Whereas I just wonder, like to me, some of the geography comparing the two places might be doing some of the work. Though I totally agree I'm with sure you. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. I'm sure that's true. I just want to put in a little reminder yes. that although because of the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994, we always think of this Hutu-Tutsi distinction as the most important one. In fact, there were also a lot of other points of connection and tension within the polity of Rwanda that the genocidal leaders actively undermined in order to get people to only focus on ethnicity. And that's part of why we look at it so much today. But regional differences, for instance, regions that were poorer and neglected compared to regions that were more prominent, had more power. These were sources of great connection across Hutu and Tutsi lines. And that was actively undermined. That's such a great point, again, about agency and about how specific solidarities are mobilized. Like we, we yeah. as Hutus will yeah. fight this group. Mm, yeah. Now, one more, one which more is like point. the language point, right? You're building a larger solidarity to achieve yep. your ends. Now, one more little point, yes. because you mentioned geography. Mm. Um, I recently learned, I had not known this. So if you go to Rwanda today, you will be struck by it's a really beautiful country. Uh, and it's this, the, the cliche is that it's the land of a thousand hills. There are these incredible steep, steep hillsides that are covered with sometimes terraced agriculture, but also a lot of trees, a lot of eucalyptus trees and other kinds of trees. And I was recently looking at some photographs from the early part of the 1900s, and there were no trees. There were basically no trees. This is an area that has become reforested, but at that time, there were no trees. These were hills with just grass and without, the, the trees are a part of colonialism also. So join the dots to me. What's the significance of the lack of trees before? Oh, I don't know if there's significance exactly, but it was this was grazing land, okay. um, and this was cropland. This was you know this was a, a landscape that had a lot of human involvement yes, in it yeah. for a very long time. And it's just really stunning. You can see there's some photographs that are in the process of being repatriated to Rwanda, um, taken by the Belgians in those early decades of the of the 1900s that are just kind of stunning and striking because you look at them and you can recognize Rwanda, but it looks totally different. Okay, Professor Louisa Lombard, I want to leave it there, but I want to share with the listeners, I think this is such a brilliant 
a brilliant way to understand Africa and the emergence of state formation or civil war and that we need to trace these long histories and do so comparatively. So thinking about geography, thinking about Muslim slavery, it's thinking about different patterns of colonial formation and how that's affected by what happened before. And then looking at the independence period and leader strategies and civil wars and building these larger solidarities, whether that's through language or heightening ethnic tensions. I, I, I learned so much from your work and I strongly recommend uh, Louisa Lombard's papers and books. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. We could have said an enormous amount more, so perhaps we can do a, a part two someday. I'd love that. Okay, you take care. Bye. And thank you for listening, everyone. This is Rocking Your Prize with Louisa Lombard and Alice Evans. Bye.